G'day and welcome to another instalment of the Fly Fishers podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing at our Melbourne fly shop. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Welcome to our part two chat with fishing identity Jim Allen. Before this episode, you should listen to episode two and then episode 34. I fish with Jim in Tasmania and when you're at his place, there's one very strict rule. You have to write up the diary before you leave. He's big on preserving the memories from days fishing and socialising at his shack in Maina and has kept a detailed diary since 1979. Apart from the obvious fishing recollections that reveal great fishing from years gone by, Jim has had some incredible people visit and write up the diary during their stay. We wanted to pick out some of the better entries in his diary and discuss them in more detail. Jim, thanks for coming back and continuing the chat. Two. <laughs> 22. <laughs> 222. Testing. Testing. He's a Victorian. Yeah, he's a real Victorian. <laughs> Remember Bill Laurie? Oh, he was great, wasn't yeah. he? He's a Victorian, you know. The 12th yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, one, two, one, two. <laughs> um, mate, thank, thank you for coming back in to do part two of uh, our podcast on Tassie, your life in Tassie. Um, it's probably not going to flow on in the, in the way that we'd really want it to. We probably should have just kept recording that night, but we had beers to be drunk that night, and so we pressed pause on it. We've got you back in here, so... Yeah, and we're so heading to a restaurant in 10 minutes, so don't, <laughs> don't waste any time. <laughs> it's the only way we can lure him here, folks, is, you know. Alcohol and food. Good, <laughs> some good food and grog. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, Jim's kept a, a really, really detailed diary uh, since the early 78, was it? Yeah, 1979. 79. New Year's Day, exactly. Yeah, wow. And, yeah, and it's funny. I, I think all fishermen should do two things. One is to keep a diary because the value of it is 20, 30, 40 years later. That diary is now nearly 50 years old. It's a, it's a seriously historical document of fishing through the 80s and 90s and that's valuable in 2023. Yeah. Yeah, so... I, and the other thing is I've always kept an insect collection and... Uh, and that's another story for another time. But no, well, let, let's start. Let's talk about that that story because you you know you, you do have a, a collection of insects there. What? Why did you bother keeping those? Because you're not a fly tie. No, no, not at all. Well, I tried for a while, but after I put apparitions of fur, feather, and tinsel on a hook, and then compared it with a good tire, I gave up very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed learning to tie flies. But no, the insects would. Because you op- I've killed a lot of fish over the years and I've opened up a lot of trout stomachs and found fascinating insects and oogly googs in trout stomachs all the way to things like a cigarette butt. Mm. And it's fascinated me. And, of course, because of that, that's a huge collection which I ended up sending down to the Tasmanian uh, University because of... Oh, it's a long story of finding a limpet, and a scientist down in Hobart had, had talked about the missing Great Lake limpet, the giant Great Lake limpet, 
And of course, I sent him a note back saying it's alive and well, I've got plenty of them. <laughs> and he wrote back and said bulldust. And of course, that started a whole, a whole new era of my collection being quite important. Right. And I was proud of that. And yeah. you know, I did it for fun. But in actual fact, it also became quite significant. In fact, one of the scientists came up to the shack in Tasmania and said, do you want the good news or the bad news? I said, well, give me the bad news first. He said, in your what we call voucher collection of insects, you've got about half a million dollars worth of fines. And I said, why? Yeah, well, you've been collecting prohibited prohibited animals, insects. And I said, and he said... And I said, well, what's the good news then? He said, well, we've made you a collector and we've registered you. <laughs> <laughs> You're okay. You can hold on to your insects. <laughs> yeah, but they went – with that, I said, well, take it away. And they took it away for three months and discovered all sorts of things that were quite rare. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all I've done is taken them out of a trout's stomach, put them in a little file, brought them back to the shack, put them in a soup dish, cleaned them up and then – with a pair of tweezers, put them in formalin. Well, of course, then in this day and age, I don't use formalin because, A, it's very cancerous and they gave me a whole lot of ethyl alcohol or some some other chemical to keep them in, which I do today. Yeah, good. Yes. Um, had, they, had those researchers ever thought about the idea of using a trout stomach contents as a, a means to evaluate insect life within waterways? Oh, they did a whole article in the Tasmanian Naturalist about how fishermen can assist science in the discovery of what's in trout's stomachs because trout are actually pretty good eaters of insects. In fact, (laughs) one of the girls there said to me, oh, if you ever find a a great lake jewel, uh, sorry, a myena jewel beetle, we'd be very interested. And I said, well, I'll keep my eye out. It was only a week later and I'm up in Canal Bay. I catch this jewel beetle in the trout stomach and I said, I think I've got the one. And she said to me, I don't think you have. I think you might have so-and-so one, you know. Mm. And anyway, I said, well, I'll leave it on the deep freeze and you pick it up because she was saying she said she was coming up over the weekend. Anyway, she picked it up Monday morning, get a phone call, all excited. There were... Plenty of these around 1976, but we haven't seen one for 20 years. And you just find one in three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that precipitated me to buy a book called The Jewel Beetles of Tasmania, which has been published 20 years ago. And and I found a copy. And in my shack today, if any visit ever comes, they can learn about jewel beetles. (laughs) But that's a fascinating study in its own right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, it, you know, we came to talk about my fishing diaries and we've gone it down on a different tangent. But That's what we do with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, There's but no point writing anything down, having any kind of run sheet. Jim's just going to do what he wants to do anyway. <laughs> anyway, but, that you know, that was another fascinating facet of, of the shack and living in the shack since 1979 and keeping a diary and collecting insects and, and, and of course, a whole lot of, you know, aquatic nymphs and, yeah. and, and, and the study of nymphs, is a partic- particularly caddis nymphs, they build the most remarkable little houses to live in in the form of colour and there's box caddises and the caddis are a fascinating study in their own right. Yeah. 
and uh, Alf yeah. Butcher, who was the first biologist ever appointed to fisheries uh, research in Victoria, uh, claimed that caddis were over half a trout's diet. Well, I don't think they are, but they're certainly a significant part of trout's diets. And, and if you ever come to Tasmania again, Andrew, which I know you will, <laughs> I'll make sure you look at my caddis collection. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait. <laughs> That just sounds great. Riveting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to any listeners that would like to see your insect collection, the 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 door of your shack seems to always be open and welcoming, Jim. So, you know, you might yeah. get a few knocks on the door at 39 Tyson Crescent. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> Probably should have made up a you know yeah, a different number there. The but anyway. good part about that, Andrew, I'll have gone fishing and the door will be shut. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a shack next door that you can <laughs> no, you, you can no. no that that is a less welcoming shack. <laughs> um, but yeah, folks, we thought we'd uh, pick out a few of the diary entries over the years. Um, and, yeah, just talk briefly about some of the, the more memorable ones and, and really it's, I guess, more about the characters that you've had pass through the doors of your shack there, Jim. You know, a lot of what we're going to go through here is uh, primarily about the fishing and the historical account of the fishing, but you, you've got to make mention of the people that you've had there as well, right? Yeah, I think so. I, You know, when I... Look back to, say, 1988 when the World Fly Fishing Championships came to Tasmania for the first time, and I think we've had them a couple of times since. Um, um, the Americans came, and I had the honour of being the captain, I don't think that's really the right word, of, of being their host. And uh, they were a remarkable group of guys. One, one, of, one of the lawyers there was uh, a lawyer for a, a rock star, and, and uh, they were interesting characters, and they were so fascinated about Tasmania and and being in a, a competition. And and they were guys that didn't want to be in a competition, sort of got forced into it. Mm. But when they when when we went through the five days of competition and practice and they had a ball. And I had a ball with them too. Yeah. It was it was great, you know, and they've all got entr- entries into the diary. There was a <laughs> their leader was a fellow called Bob Johns. I have to tell you a story about him. In the practice run-up to the competition, I took him down to uh, Bronte. I said, Bob, you know, if you do catch a fish, you know, keep it and we'll cook it for a feed tonight. (laughs) Typical Jim Allen way. (laughs) And he turned on me. He said, Jim Allen, he said, I'll have you know I have never killed a brown trout in my life and I'm certainly not going to start tonight. (laughs) And I said, oh, well, yeah, sure, Bob, but uh, but, uh, there's no harm. There's plenty of trout. Jim, a brown trout's very precious. You have no idea. Mm. And it made me think, for the first time in my life, I think, I thought, you know, these guys got a different aspect on trout fishing than I had, you know. Because and I, especially brown trout, do you think? That, was, oh, that, for, was that a, the point that he was making? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah they, 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 he, 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 he was so significant about a, a wild brown trout because... In America, most of their trout fishing is a form of rainbow trout or mm. or cutthroat trout fishing, which is sort of rainbows, mm. and um, and 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 of course, there's a book written around rainbow trout as the most changed fish in mankind. You know, where the brown trout is still 
basically as it was. And and in Tasmania we still have, I think, probably and arguably the best wild brown trout fishery left in the world. Was it a hard day on the water with you trying to, you know, sneak them into the, the Mokaban? No, 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 come on. <laughs> 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 no, but no. the smokehouse. Um, no, but, no. yeah, while we're talking about that, that competitive team, we might as well pick out a diary entry from that time. Um, so, Jim, if you can read this one out for us, it's, uh, it's by Charles Gaines on December 2nd, 1988. Oh, Charles put an entry into my diary, which um, was the wind-up, and, uh, and he wrote this, and, and it's nicely written. Jim, this was a wonderful experience for all of us Yanks. It would be silly to comment on just the fishing or even just this, the eighth world fly fishing competition, since the significant thing about our brief stay over here has been the sum experience. A juror of notable components... The friendliness and helpfulness of you, Justin, Peter, Dennis, etc. The hauntingly lovely countryside. The hell good company of the controllers, supervisors and other teams. The fine learning experience this get-together has provided everyone. The cam- camaraderie and laughs and, and being part of a team again. It's an experience none of us will ever forget and for your major role in it. Many thanks. I look forward to seeing you again soon on the other side of the Pacific. Many, many tight lines and all the best, Charles Gaines. Now, Charles, Charles was a, a writer. He, 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 he uh, and he was just an absolute gentleman. He was, he was the gentleman of the American team. There was another chap called Walter Ungerman. He wrote him a diary, and I, I won't read it. But he didn't even know what country he was in. He said the best thing about New Zealanders were Jim and his mates. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, you know. That's but, all right. But, but did you, did but you say you really enjoyed hosting the Canadian team? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. But should have. <laughs> but uh, they they were a good mob of blokes, and uh, in fact, the lawyer uh, was a lawyer for Michael Jackson at the time, and Michael Jackson was at the peak of his time. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and he did make some comment about um, his income uh, from Michael Jackson was very different from his income fishing in Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a trap fisherman and, and uh, yeah, that, that was a good time. Yeah, and we fished the Commonwealth Championships um, uh, after that and that was another experience because uh, that was all held down at London Lakes. Man, mm. That's another story. Yeah, and w- did they time. take it seriously? The competitive angles at that time was oh, absolutely. A, yeah, oh, yeah, was, no, it was red hot. Yeah, uh, not so much the Americans, but the Europeans. Mm. Yeah, that you know the team from England which won it, they were so serious. And Noel Jetson was captain of that team or host of that team. We were called captains. It wasn't true. We were the hosts, and uh, I had the American team, and and Noel had the English team, and they subsequently won it. But the French and the that the Europeans are seriously... They were next com- level. And they still are. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think, you know, uh, the Australian team now is much more serious about competitive fishing. Yeah. Uh, and, and getting there but still learning so much from those, those European teams. Yeah, the Europeans have always always been right up there. Yeah. After those uh, competitions in Tasmania, did you notice new techniques starting to creep in as a result of those competitions? Yeah, absolutely. I... I Paid a very large sum of money to go to a uh, <laughs> to a uh, a wet fly fishing school. You know, um, the uh, the way they 
pulled wets was totally different. In fact, in those days we called it lock-style fishing. and uh, Still I Still do. Yeah, not to the same degree, though. I think now that you've got nymph and nymph fishing... We literally just recorded a podcast on lock-style fishing, so... Oh, have you? <laughs> it's still called lock-style fishing. Yeah. It's alive and well. <laughs> but it has had a resurgence, Jim, to be fair. It kind of lost favour and... and it, Is that it, right? It's been yeah. reinvigorated. Well, I'm certainly out of touch, but, but lock-style fishing... I went to this geezer uh, up at Maena and paid... A little, hundreds of dollars to do a two or three or four day course learned a lot mm. but i haven't i haven't actually put it into practice we've got some seriously good wet fly fishermen here or and they they use the term pulling flies now which <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's not me you, you know but, but but nevertheless uh log style fishing has a had a boom and I thought it had fallen off, but you're saying it's come back. Well, it's good to hear. Well, it's got a time and a place. So people are valuing that technique when fish are in uh, the, the top of the water column and it, it's still a very effective way to, to, to fish for trout. I'm going to have to listen to your podcast. You should. <laughs> you should, Jim. <laughs> you might learn something. We might teach Jim Allen something, <laughs> despite his few years of experience over us. Um, but, yeah, we might... Keep on that theme of American visitors that you've had. There's an entry here by Jack Dennis. Oh, Jack um, Dennis. Oh, yeah. No, I could tell stories about Jack. Now, this <laughs> might be a, a bit unkind. <laughs> uh, uh, Jack Dennis is a, a big name in American fly fishing, though, isn't he? he he's oh, yeah. published several books. And yeah, yeah well, his fly tying books are, are world-renowned. And um, Jack, Jack's a character. <laughs> I'll read the day and then talk about magic day in Jim's terms. We actually got footage of fish rising to dry flies on the Great Lake. Three to four pound browns in... Uh, three or four browns in the three to four pound range. Incredible footage for cameras which should complete Aussie film on fishing. Jack was out here doing a, a fishing... A, a trout fishing film to take back to America... Jim has done it and got what I came for, and as a bonus, we gambled and went to Shark Lagoon. Jim nailed a seven-and-a-half-pound brown, and I caught it on a royal humpy, a seven-half-pound mate of Jim's. Beautiful day, a memory to last forever. Thank you, Jim. As to use an Aussie term, it was fair dinkum, mate. Good show. <laughs> <laughs> and then he finished, May all your friends who like home on the range, which is <laughs> an old country and western song, <laughs> and with Walter sung in harmony in the wee hours, be blessed <laughs> with true spirit of fly fishing for all their lives. Jim and the gang, may God hold you in the palm of his hand here at the shack on the Great Lake. Yours truly, Jack Dennis. <laughs> I remember... I remember that we go out to Shark Lagoon, and in those days there were monster fish in it. And um, anyway, Jack put on this royal huffy. I said, "There's no trout in the world that's going to eat that." <laughs> oh man, I've caught trout all over the world on a royal humpy. You got no worries. The trout eat it. Well. <laughs> It was about a size eight apparition that looked like a cicada to me, and the trout even in Chartagoon I thought would eat anything under yeah. a size twelve, but nothing size eight. Yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> he put it in front of this fish. A trout come up and went. <laughs> 
Wow. The rest is history. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Know? So, it, hey, that's trout fishing, isn't it? You, it is. You can be so right and you can be so wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just the way it is. Any yeah. any repeat visitors from America that you've had over the years, like uh, uh, Yanks that were drawn to come back more than once? I reckon Jack Dennis came back with his 15-year-old son one year. I reckon Jack's been back three times. Mm. Yeah, and he's one of life's characters. Um, no, not so much from America. Uh, uh, quite a few repeats out of England, uh, but uh, not so many have come back. Americans aren't like fishermen generally. They're river fishermen. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think the same with New Zealanders to a great degree. They're all river fishermen. Mm. They're not great lake fishermen. And, uh, but where the Poms, the English, are very much lock fishermen and they do a lot of still water fishing. But I, I don't think Americans do a lot of still water fishing. I think they're basically river fishermen and uh, and they've got some outstanding insect hatches on the rivers. I, I've floated down uh, rivers in America and, and had some extraordinarily good fishing. So... And also I think the trout fishing in Tasmania with Polaroid glasses is a bit difficult for them. Uh, uh, you know, the, I hope no American's listening to me, but but I don't, I don't think... I, I actually think Australian trout fishermen, and I'll say even Victorian trout fishermen, have an ability that's at another level because the fishing is so difficult. Mm. Um, but I might be wrong there, you know, but that's just a gut feeling I have. It's time for a short break to talk about the legends who bring this podcast to life. Our committed team at the Fly Fisher prepare, record and edit in-house in South Melbourne. We put huge effort in for you listeners. We hope that means when it comes time to make a fly fishing purchase, you consider us. With your loyalty, we can keep producing these podcasts and bringing you the world's best fly fishing gear. So shop smart and support the fly shop that supports you. I think, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, it's just experience, isn't it? And our lake fishing experience down in at least the southern part of Australia is pretty significant. Oh, and I think Victorian fishermen have had such difficulty in, with fishing. Mm. When they go to Tasmania, they find it quite easy or yeah. have done so. And so uh, quite often Victorians um, go down to Tasmania and have a lot more success than the locals um, mm. <laughs> That's a generalisation because in this day and age, there's some very, very talented Tasmanian trout fishermen. Bloody so I'm, I'm on, I'm on, on dangerous country making. Nah, don't worry about it. They don't listen to this anyway. No, I'm not sure you're right, Andrew. <laughs> Can't go buying gear from those mainlanders. <laughs> uh, Mate, while we're, while we're on this page, we might as well just keep going, going on. Um, so uh, this is Harry Hearn's entry from the fourth of December, nineteen. 92, talking about one of your, uh, your I guess, uh, water that you had a lot of uh, sentimental appreciation for being Lake Sorrel. Lake Sorrel is a very special water to me. Um, I wrote an article in your Flystream magazine about it just recently. As it, I'm not sure it's been published yet, has it? And anyway, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, uh, it'll come out if it hasn't been. Mm. But Lake Sorrel... We lost Lake Sorrel 30 years ago, 27, 28 years ago, and, um, and it's never recovered. But in its heyday, it was without doubt 
the great trout fishery of Tasmania with with Arthur's Lake. And to me, the tragedy is we've lost both those lakes to algal blooms. I don't know what's gone wrong. I'm no scientist, but <laughs> I'll read this because I, I, I've always enjoyed my mayfly fishing at Little Pine and Arthur's and my mate Harry Hearn, who's a solicitor here in Melbourne, uh, entered this diary entry. Under extreme protest, I dragged Jim screaming away from his beloved little pine and protesting, you never leave a Dunhatch at Little Pine with an overcast easterly. We drove down to Sorrel where the cloud hung about 20 feet above the lake and waves a foot high hammered the western shoreline. Jim gave me dark looks muttering, I told you so. <laughs> we launched the boat at Dago Point heading straight east to Diamond Beach. I think it was Diamond Head, anyway, it doesn't matter. After 10 minutes, we noticed the first March Browns come up. It was then about 2.15pm. A big hatch developed, lasting for four hours. After the second four-pound fish came to the net, Jim announced that perhaps it was worth coming. (laughs) On this occasion, we both had fish on simultaneously. At day's end, we had 14 fish. Jim ate, me six, ranging from two pounds to five pounds the biggest being a five and a quarter pounder. We drove home exhausted and very happy. It had been champagne fly fishing, one of those rare enchanted days that are the stuff of dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the day and I was totally opposed to going down there and uh, we ended up actually having three days fishing, which the diary entries show the three days and I think we caught 40 trout in the three days it was an amazing little session it was a window because of an east coast low that sucked in to the centre of Tasmania and this was warm overcast sultry and these duns came up in their millions and it was just the best dry fly fishing I think I can ever remember and of course it's Harry Hearn, who's a frequent visitor of mine to Tasmania, uh, has reminded me incessantly of uh, that magic few days of fishing. I think he only had two days of it, but we did have four days of it. It was remarkable. But sadly, we lost Sorrel, and there is some hope that it's coming back, and we can only cross our fingers and hope. Do, do all of your guests demand where they fish? <laughs> They don't come back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm laughing. Uh, Those that have fished with me frequently, um, we tend to have a cup of coffee in the morning and and quite a lot of discussion goes as to the potential of each and every water. Uh, I I think it's wrong to say that do do most of my friends demand. No, they don't. In fact... I'm probably the guide, you know. I, I often claim that I'm the great unpaid track guide in Tasmania, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's it's very much yesteryear uh, to when those sort of days were. Is um, there a little part of you that almost wants someone else to make the decision on where you go? Because it's kind of accepting responsibility as to what the day's events I can't tell you how many times we've had a cup of coffee and I've been fairly strong about going to the top end of the Great Lake or out down to Sorrel or down to Bronte Hill and then I drive out of the driveway and do something 
totally opposite I've seen of, to what yeah. I've said. Yeah. So I get into trouble with my mates there because as I drive out, I get, look at the wind, I look at the sky and reverse all of what I've said in front of mates and having <laughs> coffee. So I am guilty of changing my mind. Yeah, they're all at the boat ramp going, where's Jim's boat? <laughs> <laughs> Why is his car not here? He's somewhere totally different, that bastard. <laughs> well, there's an element of that, but that's, you know, like I actually like making a late decision on the day's fishing because quite often the day will start out with, a, a say, a northerly with cloud coming in over the Great Lake and I can see the potential of it cleaning up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I always have the view it's better to have three hours great fishing than to commit yourself too early to go to a lake and say, oh, I should have gone to Arthur's, oh, I should have gone to the Great Lake or yeah. I should be on Little Pine. So I tend to make late decisions and... Uh, Quite often I let the coffee uh, drift on until 11 o'clock in the morning because I prefer to make a decision at lunchtime than make an early decision. And I think one of the biggest mistakes fishermen make in Tasmania is getting out of bed at half past six in the morning and making a commitment to go somewhere by seven or eight o'clock in the morning because they want a full day's fishing. Um, and I think over the years I, I tend to think the, the weather through the day can change because Tasmania is very far south and, and often has southwesterlies and uh, or nor'westlies and and the cloud can absolutely go from totally 100% grey to totally 100% blue mm. by two o'clock in the afternoon. <coughs> I'm losing my voice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, mate. That's better. Yeah. A, a bit of champagne will fix everything. Of course. <laughs> it's good. It's called lubricant. That's, 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 that's <laughs> Tasmanian lubricant. It's Tasmanian lubricant. Australia's favourite oil. <laughs> Changing spots. You've just highlighted something for me. You're kind of committed to one water, aren't you? But in particular, when you've got a boat, it, there's not really enough hours in the day to pull a boat out, tow it somewhere else and then keep going again, is there? I've, but, done, I've done it many times. <laughs> I'm sure we've all done it. But yeah. at the end of the day, you kind of reflect and go, well, that was probably wasted time. Um, but it seems like out in the Western Lakes, uh, to move from one lake to the next and experience something completely different was pretty commonplace. There's an entry here uh, from you fishing uh, Shark Lagoon. Um, if you can read that one for us, Jim. Wednesday the 12th of March 1986, another superb day to double lagoon after driving to Chipman but didn't see a fish. Then walked to Shark Lagoon and had a red letter day. Saw six fish and caught four, 11 pound 10 ounces, net 10 pound 4 ounce at the pub for the comp. Yeah, Peter Wilson at the Great Lake Hotel ran a comp for the biggest fish. Uh, And then 10 pound 5 Eight and three quarters, seven and three quarters. Fantastic fish and all on the dry fly. The biggest took a G-high beetle, the others a floating nymph. Now, that's interesting. A floating nymph is now called an emerger. But in the early days, we just called them floating nymphs. There was no such word as emerger. That all came later. Anyway, the big one went 12 pound on my solar scales, but under on Peter Wilson. Peter Wilson ran the pub. Yeah. And then I put, we'll have to, I will have to buy a certified set of scales, <laughs> the best fish I've ever taken. And they still are the best fish I've ever taken in Tasmania to this very day. They weighed 39 pound 15 ounces for four fish. That's 
four fish averaging ten pounds less an ounce. Yeah. And uh, and the big fish actually got weighed properly later, and it weighed twelve pound three ounces. And it's still the largest fish I've ever taken in Tasmania. I've caught some bigger fish in British Columbia, but it's still the biggest brown trout I've taken. That's a big yeah. fish. Oh, it's a monster. And and do you think there are still fish <laughs> of that sort of calibre in the western lakes of Tasmania? Yes, I do. But they're usually at the top end of a water system, of a, a creek system, and they're certainly not in the 19 lagoons area anymore, uh, although you could still get a double-figured fish out of First Lagoon and sometimes perhaps in Shark Lagoon, which is actually now called East Rocky Lagoon, which is its original name, but we called it Shark Lagoon because we didn't want to know anyone let anyone know where we'd been at the time. It was a bit of a secret. So, uh, But it was East Rocky. In actual fact, I, I fished with my de- dentist mate, Dave Fennick, and we walked from... We left a car at Lake K and then we took the other car to Double Lagoon and we walked all the way down Double Lagoon with the aim to fish Double Lagoon and then go over to K. Well, we, we walked over and fished Chipman, didn't see a fish, and then we walked back to the car park because it had run late. And Dave said, what's this looking? And I said, I don't know. He said, let's wade through it. And Dave saw a monster and he said to me, I've just seen a huge fish. And a couple of minutes later I saw one too. Now, we didn't catch a fish that day, but I said to Dave, you're sworn to secrecy. I'm coming back on the next blue sky day. Yeah. Went back and started catching those big fish. Yeah, they were some monsters. So that this is Shark Lagoon? Is it? Yeah, Shark Lagoon, yeah, it was, yeah. which is East Rocky Lagoon. Oh, sh- yeah. What? <laughs> oh no! Well, the fisheries then went and stocked it, and the, all those sharks became eels. And because fi- one of the young blokes at fisheries at the time went and put a bag full of fish in it, and 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 it's it was a it is still today a very limited uh, water with a limited food supply, and it needs only a few fish in it. And fisheries manage it much better today and you can still catch a six or seven or eight pound fish in it, I believe. Mm. Um, and uh, so I hear good reports, and uh, it, but it's much better known. And yeah. lacking those fish around 12 pound, I oh, would well, dare uh, say. That's, that's just the past. That, yeah. what, uh, what date was that, 1986? Uh, yeah, 86. Yeah, see, that's a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I was one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, let, uh, the next entry relates to Lake Fergus. Can you just tell us a bit about your history at Fergus? And How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, Lake Fergus, when I first fished it, was a four-wheel drive horror track out there. You had to get through a few creeks and swamps and, and there was a high track and a low track. If you took the low track, you got bogged um, and... Uh, it was it was an outstanding an outstanding fishery and still is, um, and uh, I ended up with a, a group of guys buying the land around it and and had it for ten or fifteen years. Um, and the was that in an attempt to try and make access easier for yourself? No, no, just that I didn't want to see it fall into the wrong hands. And uh, and I didn't do anything with it at all. The new owner, of course, has put a proper road in, made it a private road, um, and uh, and you can still walk in there. But the old four wheel drive tracks now well closed, and you can't drive in. 
uh, for free. You, you, you need to know the owner. Um, but the fishing was without doubt the most remarkable mayfly fishing, particularly on a, a clear blue sky day with duns. And um, Do you think any worse today than it was back then? How do you mean worse? Like it seems to me of all the waters in Tasmania, Lake Fergus is the one that probably still fishes as well today as it did 10, 15 years ago. I'd agree with that 100% because it doesn't have – it's, it's a, an hour and a half walk in yeah. Which means you've got to walk for three hours to get in there. So love um, or hate that limited access, it is protecting that water in a way that no other, you know, form of management could. Correct. At another time I'll talk to you about fishing pressure over the years at Tasmania. And uh, that'll take an hour and a half, so we'll leave it for another day. But the fishing pressure in Tasmania has dramatically increased over 50 years and the fish have also changed in their behaviour. And even to a minor degree at Lake Fergus too, but the fishing pressure at Lake Fergus is so limited, it's still a, a wonderful trout fishery. Um, and, you know, I, I love going. At, um, when I sold, when our syndicate sold the property, um, the, the new owner has been very kind because <laughs> I couldn't walk in at the ripe old age of 79 uh, like I could at your age, Andrew, who is still in his 30s. You're an athletic. <laughs> and so it is a young bloke's fishery today um, uh, unless you've got the access through yeah, the road. Yeah, but one uh, that's worth the effort getting in there. And, oh, absolutely. Know, it's yeah. still a lovely. But there's some, there's some other great fisheries it, w- when you want to walk out into the western lakes of Tasmania and there's still some outstandingly large fish to be caught. Every year I hear of a 10 or 12 pounder, heard of a 14 pounder there only two years ago. So there's some still outstanding fish. They're there for the hungry. If yeah, you want to go to the effort, you can find them. Yeah, and yet having said that, quite often I hear guys come back to my shack and say, we walked out for eight hours and we're camping out there and... There are more people out there than there were in the 19 lagoons. So the fishing pressure has changed dramatically and it is harder to find a large trap. But the good side of that is most fishermen today are not killers of fish. They put their fish back. Um, The fish, I I have a feeling, are are much better educated than they were when I first fished the Western Lakes. I've even seen a trout rise to a, a natural mayfly spinner and refuse it. And it was a natural, it wasn't an artificial, it was... And I said, well, how in the hell are you going to catch a fish when he won't take a real one? <laughs> but the problem with that is food supply for the fish. They've got to eat yeah. and, and, and they don't rise as easily as they once did. Yeah, yeah. sure. Oh, as much as we could keep going off on a tangent, let's bring it back to Fergus. Um, here's an entry from Julian Brown. No, it was your entry, sorry. Uh, fishing with Julian Brown. Not sure of the year. Tuesday the 6th of February, I think it was. Um, if you can read that one for us, Jim. Ah, well, that's, it's Tuesday the 6th of December, 1980. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's Tuesday. Yeah, no, you've taken this out of context. With Julian Brown to Fergus, super day after two warm days. Black spinner hatch, wonderful days fishing resulting in 30 taken on the day. I took 21, a record, all on the black spinner, small pattern, decorated five also. 
Yeah, well, that's easy to do. Kept 12. Julian saw Fergus at its best. Great to leave the problems at the hotel for the day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Great to leave the problems at the hotel for the day. I have to tell you, Andrew, that was the worst year of my life. I was a a drunk's labourer. Oh, I ran up. I bought. But Julian Brown built the pub. Tell us a bit about Julian. I want to hear more about Julian. One of life's great characters. I fished with him for Bermagui, for elephant tuna. I fished with him on Christmas Island for bonefish. Um, Julian died a couple of years ago at the ripe old age of 90. He he was the doyen and wrote the history of Falls Creek. I could describe it. A visit by Jim Allen to Falls Creek to learn skiing, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) The man has many skills, but skiing is not one of them. Well, he's reading into that. (laughs) Julian said I was technically perfect, but I can tell you all I could do was snow plough down the wombat ramble (laughs) that I thought thought that was a precipice. And anyone listening to this who's a skier at Falls Creek will know that the wombat ramble is the beginner's (laughs) slope. Anyway, that's another story. Do you think Julian's uh, passion for for skiing was matched by his passion for fly fishing or or was the skiing more? uh, Look, he was was a really notable skier um, and he loved his fly fishing. From the point of view of passion, I think it's probably equal. On the point of view of ability, I think Julian was a serious skier and his son skied for Australia and, you know, like we're talking about a real skiing family. Um, and He he was an identity up there though, right? Oh, at Falls he's, a di- he's an identity everywhere he lived. He was one of life's great characters. And I think in fly fishing, one of the great joys is meeting people that are seriously intent on what they do. And Julian was intent and uh, he... he he invented the Dunny Brush Fly, which was given its name by Michael Nicholas of Nicholas Aspro Frame. And Michael Nicholas said, what is this fly, Julian? He said, oh, no, it's a Bogong moth pattern. He said, looks like a bloody Dunny Brush to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it got its name. And, of course, Julian was nicknamed Dunny Brush too, which he hated and didn't like at all. <laughs> but... But he, he 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 was a he was a thinker, and he he, he went on and tied. Was stick. he fishing in Myanmar for as long as you, Tassie? Is yeah, true. absolutely. Well, he bought his shack one year after me. Wow! So if you yeah, same mm. you know like and and, and that's he, where you met him. No, I met him. I met him through Falls Creek and Rocky Valley Dam, and 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 his days fishing for the Bogong moth. And in, and in actual fact, uh, Julian's sort of a lifelong friend because we, we went back I went back as long as I can remember, you know, back until we were in our 30s. But I fished with him for yellowfin tuna off Bermagui with Johnny Jubb and, and, and he was just as passionate about his game fishing in those days. Um, we went to Christmas Island together and fished for bonefish and... Mm. and uh, I wouldn't describe either of us as really great bonefish fishermen, but we certainly enjoyed our time there. And we were at a time before it was discovered. You know, the fish on Christmas Island were four, five, six pounders in those days. The last time I went back, a pound and a half, two pound was the average with an odd fish bigger. Um, and 
and and so much more is known about it now. You know, the tides, the moons, all the fish come into Paris Flats and there's still big bonefish at Christmas Island, but it's a different Christmas Island when I went back there after 30 years. Was Julian one of those maybe early adopters to you that you could uh, get keen on something you were keen about? Yes, I suppose so. Um, I don't think I was the catalyst to make him keen on fly fishing. I think he's pretty keen to start with. No, but... But, but his fly fishing world vision expanded dramatically by Tasmania mm. and uh, I would say he loved his fly fishing as much as I did, but he wasn't... Well, of course, I was in the industry and he wasn't, so... You know, it's hard to make comparisons, but he was a great fishing mate. And as the day, as he went into his late 80s, he certainly lost a lot of vision. And in fact, he probably shouldn't have been driving a car the last year. But anyway, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> but he was, a, he, he seemed he to be someone that was had an active mind till uh, the day he died. Uh, and one of the best cooks. You could ever remember, I think. and making whiskey at a ripe old yeah, age as well. Yeah, you know. and, and like me, collecting an insect. Actually, he was the catalyst for me to collect insects, because he, he he was the guy who started insect collecting, and and I said I'm into this too. And mm. but he was he was ahead of me there. Yeah, he started an insect collection much before. Yeah, he know. seems to be a guy that was never afraid of developing a new passion right to the end. I'd agree. Yeah, he, he, he lived life. You know, like you could. I could tell stories about Julian which shouldn't go to air, so I won't. <laughs> but, but you know, he, he's a he, he was. Yeah, you only in life have time and your friends, and the sands of time go through the hourglass, and your friends are forever. But you don't have many really great true friends. Julian was a great true friend and that's the best way I could describe him. He was just one of life's great characters. He was full of it. and uh, That's a beautiful tribute to a great guy, mate. Well done. Yeah, well, he's, he, he's a very special guy and, and, and he loved his fishing. And he was a good fisherman too, you know. Like you wouldn't describe him as a great fisherman, but he was a good fisherman he, and his soul was in fishing, yeah. Um, we're going to uh, maybe – this might be the last diary entry that we read, since we've gone so far over time. <laughs> There's another six entries here that we were going to read out, but we won't do that. Um, this one's from Mark Penny. Uh, oh, I know which one this fill, is. Yeah, 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 yeah fill yeah, us yeah, in yeah, a bit yeah. on your history with Mark. Well, uh, two young blokes worked for me. One was Rodney Foy, the other was Mark Penny. They both started as young teenagers – um, Mark at 15, Rodney at 16, I think. By the time they were 18, they were both Australian champion fly casters. Um, and Rodney went on and cast for Australia in championships overseas. Mark won the Australian championship, both dry fly, wet fly and accuracy, put his rod back in the rack turned to his father and said, well, that's it, I'm not doing that again. His father said, why not? He said, it bores me shitless. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said I'm, I'm going out at the top. And he said, I don't want to hang around with all you old blokes waiting for two hours to go three minutes on the board. And that is probably even today a fundamentally reason why competition fly casting is not 
You think it's a bit popular. flawed in that area? Well, I, now I, I don't like being critical, but I think they need to change it around where if a young bloke starts off fly casting, he should go on the board three, four, five times in an afternoon, not once or twice. Mm. And uh, you've got to hang around for three hours to get your turn on the board. Uh, they need lots of more boards, so you know that more casting well, pools, more uh, infrastructure. To, to use an analogy, <laughs> clay target shooting now has five or six courses in a ground where they haven't gone on with fly casting, but that day might come. Mm. But um, anyway, both of those boys were champion fly casters. And t- talking about talking about Lake Fergus, I took Rodney Foy out there, and he's oh, seventeen or eighteen. And he's Australian fly casting champion. <laughs> and he said to me, as he, he put his arm around my shoulder at the end of the day, he said, I might be able to cast better than you, Jim Allen, but you're ahead of me in this fishing. And the Mockapan scoreboard was, you know, he, he caught a lot of fish, but we had a great day. I but I it, caught I a few more. I think it was more. 20 fish to Jim and Rodney eight fish. Might have been too. <laughs> <laughs> you found that. The We've entry. got that entry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not going to bring that one up. Okay. We, we will. Yeah. But well, let me tell you one more story about Rodney. He was one of those skinny kids, and you couldn't fill him up. I gave him one day I cooked a roast lamb. He ate half the roast lamb, <laughs> about fifteen roast potatoes, five or six roast carrots, and I and he said he was still hungry. So I got to work. <laughs> and 72 pikelets later, I think he said to me, what? I can't eat another thing. And I went, oh, got him. <laughs> uh, Where does he put it? Uh, anyway, Mark Penny, the other, the other teenager who's now 50-something, he, he was also at 17 a, a champion fly caster. But he got serious about his fishing, and I think I'm going to read the entry that you are. I wrote at the time. Yeah, and, no, and let's it do is because sp- Mark Penny was probably 20 at the time, might have been 18, 19 at the time, and he wrote this: "Today was a great day. It was one of the greatest, and definitely mine. As I sit here on cloud nine with a few beers under my belt and ponder the day's events out at Botsford." Why shouldn't I be? I've had wine, women and song and today shit's all over that (laughs) as it's not every day you take a seven-pound, five-ounce rainbow only to be followed by a six-pound, two-ounce brown and another of four-pound. And to add to that, Jim takes eight fish ranging from two-and-a-half-pound to six-pound including four over five-pound. The only dampener on the day was James not taking a fish. That was James Laycock, who get, nowadays comes down to Tasmania and catches 30 trout in a day. <laughs> That's another story. But as everyone finds out, there's an apprenticeship to be served at Botsford. As I sink a few more beers, I might not remember tonight, but I'll never forget today. <laughs> now, that was, that was written by a teenage boy, and yeah. I think that's pretty special. It's bloody and, good. And in my diary, it's got an asterisk for, yeah. for people to read because, you know, like, it, it was... A, a very special day, and Botsford at the time was a very special trout fishery. You know, it, 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 it didn't get fished a lot in clear blue sky days because the Tasmanians hadn't really woken up to polaroiding in the wind. And uh, as I've repeated a hundred times to you before, John Philbrick discovered the window in the waves and polaroiding in northerlies in clear blue sky days, and that they were the early days that that fishing was available.
Yeah, wow. Yeah, pretty special. Bloody oath. Um, let's just uh, talk a little bit more about Mark because not only the, the you know the apprenticeship of, uh, of fishing Botsford, but also a bit of an apprenticeship with you. He was a, a young kid that stuck around for a lot of years. Oh, yeah, Mark Penny um, uh, started working for me, I think, when he was 15. Left school. His father wasn't very comfortable about him leaving school so early. <laughs> what kind uh, of parent would be? Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> And then he went on and he actually managed our fly fishing department, then went on and ran our fishing travel agency called Mayfly Travel. Um, he, he was a significant uh, developer of our wholesale section, which was Mayfly Tackle, uh, which still exists today. And, uh, yeah, no, he, 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 and he, worked, he worked there until late 20s then he went off into the pharmaceutical in industry and and rose to the top there in fact he got offered a job in new york by pfizer um and yeah and nowadays he runs a company called sleep app near victoria where he teaches people to sleep properly but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sends bills yeah and, and become a farmer he, he he, he uh, has a farm at Casterton and he grows the blacks. And I said, what's that? He said, well, most people have the reds. They're the Herefords. And he said, I'm Angus, black Angus. <laughs> and he said, you grow the reds or the blacks down here. <laughs> <laughs> and he also said to me the other day, he said, the best vision of Melbourne today is in the rear vision mirror over the Westgate Bridge. <laughs> oh, come on now. It's not that bad. We're doing all right, aren't we? We've got Tassie sparkling. We're sipping on here, talking to you. <laughs> You've hung around. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, to me, on it looks like the at that time, uh, Mark Penny, James Laycock, Rodney Foy, you had a really good young fraternity of keen fly fishers that were involved with the business and with – that Tassie kind of fishing, was that a pretty special time to you when you reflect? At the time, not, but reflecting back, yes. You know, they were, there was a, a young enthusiasm in the whole of the complete angler team in those days. You know, I remember going to boat shows and the guys would work at the boat show till it was closed down at half past nine, then we'd all go off at pizza and they went to bed at midnight and up the next morning back at the boat show and... They weren't there because they had to be. They no, were there because they wanted to be. And they weren't paid double time or treble time either, I have to admit. I'll <laughs> <laughs> be after you, mate. The powers no, and, and even today, all those guys stay in touch, you know, like... Yeah, like, of course, Mark's still a very close friend that you're in well, touch with. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'd have dinner with him once every couple of months. And, yeah. and, uh, and one name we haven't mentioned yet is Tim Wallace. You know, like, uh, he's obviously... Yeah, that's another story, because Tim's dad, David, and I were good mates at school, and so we were school friends, and so Tim came about uh, in a lifelong friendship with his father, firstly, and then Tim started age date fly fishing, Um and I've seen the development all through the whole lot where today he's probably one of Tasmania's better trout fishermen. But that's another story for another time too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as I said before, you know, it's the friendships made that are significantly more important, I think, in life than actually the fly fishing. You know, it, it, you get a warm and fuzzy feeling knowing that you've got a... 
friends that support you and you support them or have supported them and they're now supporting you. Some of those kids now sort of help me more because next year I'm 80, you know, no longer a young cult and uh, those kids that were once teenagers now in their 50s with wives and children and beat goes on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great, mate. Yeah. That's a nice note to end on too, mate. That, it's really Great. Thank you so much for coming back in and, and finishing off this chat on Tasmania. I'm sure there'll be so much more that we can chat about. So whenever you're uh, feeling a bit peckish and need a steak in Melbourne, <laughs> 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 we'll look after you. Is that bribery or corruption? <laughs> <laughs> bribery. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, thanks for listening, guys, and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>